We spent the better part of the past month or two looking at uh, how important it is to have a loving relationship with God that will last for all eternity. And, and the question that, of course, comes up then is, is how is it that we express our love for God or develop our love for God or deepen a love for God when you can't see Him or touch Him or just call Him up on the phone and talk to Him like everybody else that we have a loving relationship with. And so it creates some challenges in that unique dynamic. And so the past couple of weeks as we've been kind of going this kind of topic of, well, God, here's my heart. How do we give God our heart? And so we start off talking about uh, how the, we can express that through worship and the vital role that just the music we listen to uh, plays and, and how we uh, develop that loving relationship, how uh, when we think about our season of giving, there's two kinds of people we give to during this season oftentimes. There's the people who were kind of like, oh, I guess I have to give something to them too. Then there's people we like, are excited to buy a gift for and we're looking for and we're excited when we find the perfect gift for that person and we just can't wait for them to open it. Some of you, I've already let them open it because you just can't wait for them to open it. And God says, I want to be that kind of person in your life. I want to be the kind of person that you cheerfully want to give to because that's an expression and a, a picture of the love that's in our heart. And then, of course, Pastor Chris talked about uh, how we express our love through service, and serving is a love language, and when you love somebody, you want to just be able to serve them and help them and be there for them, and whether that's done here within the walls of a church or just in people that you, are, or that you know, that you love God by loving them or loving the least of these by how you serve them and treat them. And then last week, we started talking about prayer, and uh, prayer is kind of a difficult thing, and last week, I, I just kind of wanted to deal with the heard of two big elephants in the room uh, of prayer that often keeps people from praying or makes prayer difficult, and that is sometimes we think God's mad at us for something. And so we went through and looked at, you know, why is it that we sometimes think that? How do we deal with that issue? Other times we don't pray because we're mad at God, and things haven't turned out the way we wanted them to, and we're frustrated over that. And so we struggle to have a conversation with God. And of course, I shared last week I was there for a long season of my life. This week, though, I want to talk about the other reason why we don't pray, and I think it's probably the most common, and that is we just don't really think about it. I don't know. And the reason why we don't really think about it is because, quite honestly, we don't really think about anything. Harvard researchers, these two guys named, uh, let me make sure I get the right name so they can be credited, uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert did this study on what you think about and found that 47% of the time in your day, your mind just wanders aimlessly. Just random thoughts come in and out of your head for no particular reason, and they're kind of odd, strange thoughts, whatever thoughts, just sometimes they're anxiety, fear thoughts. You just create and imagine things. Sometimes you wonder about things that have no you know, practical importance or usefulness. Uh, these things are just your mind just drifts. The rest of the time, most of your uh, mental capacity is is taken up with people who are urgently throwing something at your face. Uh, that could be your kids, mom, 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 or somebody coming to you at work and saying, hey, can you get on this? Can you do this? Or whatever task is in front of it, you have to get done. Uh, or sometimes it's just you pick up your phone and allow this to tell you what it is your mind's going to think about, and you scroll through and you look through Facebook or you look through news articles, whatever it is, and that takes up your mind share in that moment. But the question is, is how much time do you typically give in a typical day to just really thinking about something that needs to be thought about, to reflecting on your life or who you are or your relationship with God or uh, how you can improve a relationship that needs to be improved. How often do you really just stop and really sort through and think about those things? Uh, 
Not very often. And, and the reason is because our life consists of habit loop after habit loop. A couple of years back, I was reading through Charles Duhigg's book on the power of habit and opened my eyes to the fact that our minds are sort of like, uh, we, we run these computer programs. And just, if you ever run a computer program where you, where you hit enter and then the program just runs itself, that's kind of what happens. You wake up in the morning and instantly your morning routine program starts. And that typically is your, maybe whatever it is for you, the alarm goes off and you hit snooze and you go back to sleep. And then your alarm goes off again, you hit snooze, only this time you open up your phone, you check something, whether it be social media or email or whatever texts have come in or maybe some reading that you have as you kind of slowly start to wake up. You then do wake up, you make sure you go and you hit start on the coffee maker, whether that's in your bathroom, in your bedroom or over in the kitchen, you go ahead and gotta get that thing started because you gotta get that underway. Then maybe you go and you get your shower then you go over and you get your first sip of coffee then only then are you ready to go ahead and wake up anybody else in the house and you get them up and you start your routine to get the kids off to school and about 30 minutes later they're on the bus, they're out the door, you think about what you need and then you go get in your car. Haven't thought about anything all morning other than just, this is what you do. You just go through that routine. And then when you get in your car, your mental program says, okay, morning routine program is done. What next? Oh, drive to work program. So that starts. And here's the thing. Duhigg points out that when you're going through these mental programs, these habit loops, you have the same mental capacity as you did when you were sound asleep. You're not thinking. You're literally sleepwalking through the whole routine, which is why on your way to work, if you have to stop somewhere, you got to leave yourself a note. Otherwise, you will just turn left, turn right, turn right, turn right, turn left, turn right, you're at work. And you get there and you have no idea how you got there. Because you weren't thinking. Your mind was just aimlessly wandering that whole time. Because your mind doesn't want to have to think. So it runs these loops. And because it runs these loops, you don't really think about anything. So why is it that I don't pray? Because I just wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just sort of moving through my day. Uh, and prayer is is a time where you're stopping and really thinking about your day and who you are and who God is and you're expressing out the, the concerns and the needs of your life. Uh, and it's good for us to have those moments where we stop. Now, I just recently was given an Apple Watch as a gift and I, there's all, Apple does this thing where they just like throw apps on your phone or throw apps on your watch whether you want them or not. They're just like, we think this is what's best for you. They're kind of like an annoying parent who just continues to parent you even when you don't want them to parent you anymore like no no you need this take this with you so on the watch uh you know things kind of just buzz all the time and so this one thing showed up and it was mindfulness anybody seen that thing show up and i'm like what kind of buddhist monk thing is steve jobs trying to shove down my throat now delete, you know, try to, and I, I don't know how you get stuff off of things too either, right? Like sometimes it's just there and you can't get rid of it. And so I'm like mindfulness. This has to be some sort of Tibetan thing. I don't know. So I went and looked up just at least what is mindfulness anyway. Uh, I thought it was interesting. It said, uh, it is the basic human ability to be, fuel, to be fully present and aware of where we are and what we're doing and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us. Interesting. It's just simply to be fully present and aware of where we are and what we're doing. And I thought about that as I was kind of getting ready for this message, and I was like, yeah, that's the problem in our life, though, is we're not very mindful. So kudos to Apple for you know, kind of coming over and saying, hey, you're not thinking about anything. Just stop for a minute and think. And so I went ahead and played along, finally, and hit the button that said, you know, it was like, it, was like, it told me like it was time for my mindfulness exercise. That's what was so weird. I'm like, 
how do you know it's time for this? And what is this anyway, right? So I went ahead and said, I'll play along. Fine. Okay. And it says, pause for a moment and rest. Get it quiet. When you're ready to begin, hit the button. I'm like, oh, can't wait to see what happens. So I hit the button. Then it's like all these like mood ring things show up on the thing while you're supposed to like give you like a minute to like contemplate and think. So what do, what, do you, what do Christians call it when you pause for a minute, you get quiet, and you contemplate, and you think? What do we call that? Praying. Praying, yeah. It's really interesting how much, you know, prayer is right in line with the idea of meditation. Now, when we think about meditation, we instantly think of some sort of Eastern religion. Whereas what you'll find if you study the Scriptures is meditation is mentioned all throughout, a whole lot in Psalm 119 where the guy continually meditates on the Word of God over and over and over again. But meditation comes up. It even comes up in the Christmas story. You know that? What happens after the angel of the Lord visits Mary? It says, Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Other, other translations will say, meditated on them. I mean, wouldn't you? Angel shows up, tells you that you're going to be pregnant, that you're going to be carrying God's son, that you're the Messiah is going to come out of you, and all this stuff's going to go down, and it's just like her head spinning, and she's just like, whoa, what is this? I mean, that's why we sing that song at Christmas, what child is this? Like, really, what child? You, you know, I think we do need to spend some time every year at Christmas just contemplating and thinking and reflecting and, me- reflecting and meditating on the incarnation, the fact that the Word has been made flesh, that God has come and He's walked among us, that takes some time to process. In the midst of everything else going on, we should slow down just like Mary did and think and ponder these things in our heart and ask, what child is this that lays there in the manger? We need to take some time to think back and to reflect and to meditate. The the main difference, though, between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation is Eastern meditation is focused on emptying your mind to get to the place where your mind is completely empty and, and void. Whereas Christian meditation, rather, is about filling your mind and filling your mind up with who God is and who you are in relation to God and what God has done and allowing God's Spirit to, to fill you and to move through you. And so while there is meditation in both, there's, there, there's, there's a slight difference. And this is so true, but every religion all has what I would call an echo of truth. Like, I'm not one of those who would tell you that every religion is bad. No, most religions have a lot of good things in them. And that's why they're so misleading, right? The most misleading thing is the thing that seems true or sounds true, and there's a lot of truth. And in the Eastern religions, they'll tell you to meditate. There's a, a value in meditation. It's just the slight thing that's off is they want you to empty your mind, whereas in Christian meditation, it's to fill your mind with who God is. And so I want to look at a passage that talks about meditation and explains it a little bit. Uh, it's over in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, Psalm was a collection of books, of writings, of of prayers to God, of songs to God, of, of intimate closeness with God. And it's as if he's beginning at the very beginning of the book to tell you how it is to read this book and to comprehend this book and take it all in. Just the way in the book of Proverbs he begins off and he says, here's what wisdom is and why you need to listen to it. In the book of Psalms he starts off and explains to them, uh, the people who would be reading it, here's how you take this all in. And he says this, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that the sinners take or sit in the company of the mockers, but the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree that's been planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither and they, whatever they do prospers. But not so with the wicked. They're like the chaff, that, the wind that blows them away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the righteous of the assembly. 
or the assembly of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, I always say whenever you're reading something in the Bible and something doesn't make sense or you have a hard time with something, typically that's the most profound thing in there. And if you can just study it long enough, think about it long enough, explore it long enough, that's probably what's going to open your eyes. Uh, And that's part of what meditation is, is it's going deeper into these things to contemplate and think about them. And in this passage, there's a phrase in here that I've read my whole life, and it wasn't until working on this message that I finally understood it. I finally studied enough to figure out what it meant. Uh, And it's always bothered me, because I always thought I knew what it meant, and I didn't like it. Uh, And it says, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Now, I don't like laws. I don't know if you're like me. I don't like laws. I've never delighted in any laws. I've never said, oh, there's a police officer. I'm so excited. He'll be enforcing these things. Or I really love it when Congress decides to pass another law, because I just delight in laws. I love laws. No, I don't like any laws. I don't like laws. I wish we could live in a world without laws where we didn't need laws. I wish we wouldn't have to have people who enforce laws and tell laws and make laws. I'm not really excited about laws. Now, do I want to live in a country of order? Yes. But would I get to the point where I say I love the law? No. When it comes to God and His Word and His laws, do I read the Ten Commandments and go, oh, I love the Ten Commandments. Let me read those again. Oh, did you tell me there's 613 laws in the Old Testament? I can't wait to discover all of them. (laughs) I wish I was spiritual enough to be able to be like that. I never have been able to, right? Now, I've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times. I have a degree in studying the Bible. I've studied the Bible in its original languages. I've never come to the point where I've gone, oh, I love the law. I don't like the law. As a matter of fact, I don't like anybody telling me what to do, not even God, honestly. I don't delight in the law. So I've always struggled with this passage until I began to study it more. And then it made more sense finally this week in studying it. When he says delight in the law of the Lord, uh, that word the law of the Lord can refer or mean to two different things. Now they're both related, but it can have two primary meanings. One, when you're talking about the law of the Lord, quite oftentimes you're talking about the first five books of the Bible which was the giving of the law. Uh, In Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments given, and then following after the Ten Commandments being given throughout the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, you have the law explained and described, and there's just law after law after law, uh, how you live and how you apply these things. There was the ceremonial law and the ritual laws, and then there was the moral laws. Uh, All that is all law. And so oftentimes when they're talking about the law of the Lord, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible, or sometimes even more specifically, they're referring to the Ten Commandments that were given by God. However, there's another thing that is often meant when it talks about the law of the Lord or law of God, and that is it's a way of referring to the entire Bible. So when you say the law of the Lord, you're talking about the entire Bible, everything that God has said. But there's a lot of ways to talk about the whole Bible other than saying the law of the Lord. So when somebody says the law of the Lord, Uh, They're not just talking about the whole Bible, but specifically they're honing in on the authoritative nature of what God has said. That everything that God has said is is law. Or another way of saying it, everything that God has said is, is true. And it's highlighting out this is a truth that has authority over my life. And so what he's saying is I I delight in the truth that God has shared. Now when it comes to truth, a couple of things about it. Number one is, I'm not one of those who says, well, God said it, therefore it's true. I, I, 
I don't, I don't like that, that way of thinking. I don't like that, that, that way of speaking because it reminds me of like my parents who would say, well, because I said so. Now, the Bible isn't true just because God said so. Rather, God's only going to say what is true. Does that make sense? He's not somebody who's going to lie to you, right? And if he says it, he's only saying it because it is true. Like there are times where you don't like the truth and you want somebody to change what they're saying. Well, I don't like that. I want, you, I want something different. Well, what do you want me to do? You want me to be honest or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? God's always going to be honest. And sometimes you look at it and go, well, I don't like that. Well, I, what do you want? I mean, it's, it's, it's true. Now, as much as we might say we don't like it when somebody is honest with us, we'd rather them just lie to us and tell us what we want them to hear, let's face it, at the end of the day, we like knowing what is true. And it's helpful to know what is true. Because when you don't know what is true, it causes problems. Uh, I always say it's like this. When it comes to God's word, or truth in general, you really have three options, okay? Number one is, you can trust truth because of the person telling you is always going to tell you the truth. In other words, I look at God's word, and I can just trust on the front end because I'm going to look at it and say, God, I believe that you are only going to tell me what is true, and therefore, if it's in your word, I can trust that it's true because you're not going to lie to me. That's option one. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I will look at it and say, you know, I don't agree with it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to do it. But God, if this is what you say works best in relationships, if this is what you say is right, if this is what you say is wrong, if you say to forgive, okay. Not happy about it, but it's true. Option two, many of us go to this category, and that is learn the hard way, right? Do whatever you want. Go ahead. Knock yourself out, man. Eventually, you'll find what is true. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. He's in his late 50s. And he was coming, came to me and he's like, he was going through issues, what's been going on the past couple of weeks. And um, he's like, I'll just be honest with you, Steve. He's like, I literally have gotten drunk and hung over to the point of throwing up six times in the past 10 days. And I looked at him and I'm like, you're 57. <laughs> Didn't you learn like in your 20s not to do this anymore? I mean, like, how many times do you have to, I mean, I understand when college kids go off, you know, early Navy days, right, whatever, you know, you're free, you're out of the house, nobody's around, and you want to go out and party, and you get wasted, and then you're hugging the toilet, and then you're hungover. Don't somewhere between the age of 18 and 28, you start to realize, why am I doing this? This is just dumb. Now, you could go on over and just read the Word of God that says, do not get drunk. You could have read that if you wanted to. Don't get drunk. I don't know why. It seems like as if it might be fun. Those people are like, but God says not to get drunk, so I won't do it. Or you can go live that out and experience it and figure it out on your own. Or you can go through life a little bit longer and have an issue where you can't figure it out. And at some point, the problems become so severe and so big that it realize you have to because your life has become uncontrollable and you have, and it's created a mess. And so you then say, I need something like Celebrate Recovery to work on this so I can find recovery from this. And you, 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 you learn the hard way, this is no way to live. And it's destructive. 
The last way is where you spend anywhere from $100,000 to a million dollars on Harvard research studies to explore and to study out the harmful effects of said behavior. You know, it's sort of like I, I remember when I was uh, taking a marriage and family class at Florida State, uh, they said that the sociological studies said that cohabitation before marriage uh, leads to uh, a, a lessening of the marriage vow, and it's much less likely that the marriage will last if you began off cohabiting. And they did all these studies on that. Now, you can either listen to the Harvard studies, you can try it and see it for yourself, or you can trust God's word with it. I don't care which way you go. Eventually, you end up at truth. And what the psalmist is saying is, I love the fact that there's a place I can go to find out what is true. I can take a shortcut. I don't have to learn the hard way. I don't have to spend millions of dollars and do all this research. I can just take the shortcut and read it in God's word and understand that he's only going to tell me what is true. And I can look to it what is true. And, and it's so nice when you have truth. Any source, I mean, any source of truth is just great truth. Like, for instance, when I first moved here, it was before GPS, right? You didn't have a phone with GPS. So I had, somebody gave me a paper map of the area. <laughs> it was a very ambitious paper map in that it was certain that the city of Virginia Beach and Chesapeake would work together and get that Lynn Haven extension into Volvo done right away. So I was trying to get to Chesapeake, and I'm following the map, and it dead-ended. Not happy. I also find that I struggle in this area, even to this day, without, when I don't use GPS. That intersection area of town where Lynn Haven, Independence, and Rosemont all are together, you with me on that? If I ever have to find an address anywhere within a two-mile radius of that, coming from this building, I always GPS it, because I can't get there I have actually made the loop in the circle where you go Independence, go the wrong way on Lynn Haven, and end up right back at Princess Anne, which then, you know, it's just as easy to go ahead and take a left, go back to Independence, and come back around. I'm like, I'm just circling the block. So what I found is I need to GPS it, even if I think I know where I'm going. And I delight in the truth of the GPS. I do. I delight in that because it gets me there quicker, keeps me from going in circles, I delight in the truth because it gets me where I need to go. I delight in the fact that I can trust it to tell me where it need to go. I delight in truth when I learn something about somebody I didn't know, good or bad. Let's just take a bad one. As frustrating as it is to realize that somebody's not trustworthy, aren't you glad when you realize it and you know you, you can't trust them to hold a secret? They're going to tell everybody. I know that now. Now, you either live in that truth and you don't share with them close, intimate, personal secrets anymore, or you go against the truth, and what happens when you go against the truth? Okay, you get kicked in the whatever. Um, uh, you, you suffer for it, right? You get burned again, right, until you learn that truth. So what I'm getting at is, is when you know the truth and you can live in it, you're blessed for it, Right? And he says, I delight in the fact that God's only going to tell me what is true. And he's written down this whole big old book full of truths about life. And so he says here in the, in the scriptures, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the step of the wicked, doesn't have to learn the hard way or stand in the way that the sinners would take. They just keep circling the block around Lynn Haven because they don't know which way to go in life and they keep making dumb decisions. 
Blessed is the one who doesn't do all those things or sits in the company of mockers who just assumes that everything in the Bible, you can't really trust it. You've got to do your own thing. Oh, you're going really, to really, you know, trust a 1,000, 2,000-year-old book, really, to tell you what to do? Blessed is the one who didn't go down that path. But rather, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, who meditates on it day or night. So you'll be blessed when you recognize that what God's saying is true and you enjoy the fact that you know what the truth is. There's blessing in that. And then he says, and meditates on it day and night. Now, the meditation thing, very important. Um, do you realize your memory is only about one to, two, one to three seconds long? That's how long your memory is? Really, it is. Unless you commit something to long-term memory. Your memory is typically one to three seconds. That is why you can set your drink down and have no idea where you put it. You're not getting old. That's just, you just, it's just your memory doesn't last long enough. Uh, for many of you, if I were to ask you to recite to me uh, 10 words in a row of what I've said earlier, you, you couldn't do it. Most of us in this room can't do it. Like, I get the gist. I sort of kind of have a recollection, but I can't tell you word for it, even though you heard it. Your memory doesn't keep it. Your memory only lasts one to three seconds long, which is why somebody you're sitting next to has probably said to you at some point, why are you not ready? I told you yesterday we had to get going there by six o'clock. I don't remember that. It's true. He doesn't remember that. She doesn't remember that. Her memory is only one to three seconds long, unless it's committed to long-term memory, which is why when it's really important, you got to recognize, hey, Tomorrow, I need you ready at 6 o'clock. Did you get that? Let me go ahead and text this to you because I know you won't remember because memory only lasts one to three seconds. And so I will text you to make sure that you know, and I will add it to our, to you, to our joint calendar so that way you have it down because I understand that memory only lasts one to three seconds. And although I've said it, there is no way you could possibly humanly remember it because your memory only lasts one to three seconds. Unless you've committed to long-term memory. And the ways you do that, of course, is you have to meditate on it. You have to be intentional about it. You have to go, okay, tomorrow, just to be clear, tomorrow we need to be there at six o'clock. All right, let me make a mental note of that. Six o'clock tomorrow, we need to be there. That's a form of meditation where you're taking and processing it and thinking through it and thinking about it. Because if it's just said and heard, you won't remember. You won't. Your brain's not designed to remember that because your memory only lasts one to three seconds. And so he says, I meditate on it day and night. Uh, meditate. Um, the opposite, that's what James talks about over in James chapter 1. He says this, James chapter 1 verse 22, he says, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anybody who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says, like somebody who looks at their face in the mirror, and after looking at himself, walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Well, of course he forgets, because it's only one or three seconds. It's like if you were trying to put on makeup, and you looked in the mirror, and then you looked away and tried to put it on. Could you do that? No, you can't, it's like I have to be looking right there to figure out where it's at. Like if I want to shave the back of my head, part of us being a single guy is you, when you're bald, you, you shave. I, I have to be looking to know right where it's at. I can't just go, all right. It's nice you can make a lot of mistakes when you're bald because really how much can you really mess it up anyway? Um, <laughs> but he says, whatever looks at intently, but here's where he goes. He says, uh, after looking at it, it goes away and immediately forgets what it looks like. He says, but... Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. When he talks about the law that gives freedom, he's talking about the Ten Commandments? He's talking about the whole counsel of God's word, which is true. He says, it looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but actually doing it. 
they will be blessed in all they do. You see the consistency? When you live in truth, you're blessed for it. When you don't think about the truth and you forget about it and you continue living the lie or you continue to try to figure out truth on your own, you're going to suffer the consequences for it. But when you hear the truth and you remember it and you think about it and you focus on it and you accept it, there's a blessing that awaits there. So how do you do that? Um, I love hearing stories and people say, after we leave church, we sit in the car and we talk about what we learned this morning. That's a form of meditation, right? Because you're, you're working it through and you're thinking about it. That, that conversation is where you're working through the details of it. You're not, your mind's not just aimlessly going, oh, okay, who's playing today? Are the Bills playing today? The Cowboys playing today? What are we watching? Redskins? What are we doing today? What's, what's their record? Aimless, wandering, mindless talk, right? Focused thought, though, is where you think about it, you reflect on it. How do I apply this? How do I take what I learned this morning and do something with it? Now, you can do that with a sermon. You can do it with your own personal Bible study. Uh, I do this also with worship music. I've told before, this is why I start off my day with worship music. And sometimes, yeah, it's just background fodder. Uh, However, there's a time, my hope is that each morning as I'm listening to it, I'll have a moment where I'll catch a few of the lyrics and let them absorb in as a reminder of who God is, who I am, who's in control, what this day is going to be about, and it's got to be lived in light of that, that reality. It's a part of that meditation. We just sort of think about it. You, you, you commit it to it. Uh, God says this to, to Joshua. Uh, now Joshua's situation is, he's always had Moses to look to, right? And it's, a, it's kind of been a comfort for him. Because he's always been to look to Moses. Whenever he wants to know what God wants him to do, he can just go ask Moses, because Moses goes and talks to God all the time. Well, he's got a big task ahead of him. Uh, they've got to go in and face a major battle. Uh, they are outmanned. They are outgunned. Uh, they are going to be the attacker, not the defender, which is a much harder position to be in. And you want to know, how's he going to do this? The book of Joshua starts off and says, Moses is dead. Now you've got to go do this. That's a wake-up call, isn't it? And Joshua wonder, how am I going to do this? And he says to him this, Joshua, you've got to be very strong and courageous. So be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. By the way, at this point, the only thing they had was the first five books of the Bible. So he says, be, be very careful to obey that. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded? Be strong and be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, is this promise to be successful supernaturally connected to? You meditate on it and God will like, is this a health and wealth promise? Is that what this is? Or is it looking at it and saying, when you meditate and you focus and you think about what is true, you will have success? I mean, what's the opposite? Trial and error? I can't guarantee success on that route. That's called learning the hard way. Eventually, you'll figure it out, but it'll be hard. Isn't that what mom and dad says to you? Son, listen, you can either trust me on this. I've been there. I know this. I've got the t-shirt, I've learned the lessons the hard way, I've got the mental scars, and in some cases, the physical scars. Here's what you need to do. Or you can do whatever you want. But if you do this, I'm telling you, it's going to work out. Because it's true. It's what actually works. I can tell you this for, for the truth that I've experienced it. I can read it to you out of God's Word and tell you. Or you can do what you want. Hey, I can't tell you that it's not going to fail. That's an interesting idea. It may work. May not. I don't know. Have at it. Go for it, son. 
Is God not telling you the same thing? I'm telling you what's true. And if you do what is true, you'll be blessed for it. You want to do your own thing? Good luck. I'll be here when, you, when, it, when it fails. I want to spend some time as we close out this morning just giving you the opportunity just to meditate on some of God's words. I'm going to ask Alex if he'll come back up um, just to lead us. I think the song he's going to be playing in the background is um, Oh, What Child Is This? Uh, it's just a, it's a song, of course, as Mary. You know, just picture it in the garden as you're, or not in the garden, but you're there in the, the manger just contemplating and thinking about, you know, the incarnation of God. This morning, though, I just want to be reading just some other passages of Scripture uh, just to give you some practice in this of what it might look like, uh, where you would just maybe read through a passage of Scripture about something, whether it be something you do in your daily reading, uh, something in a reading plan off of a U version, maybe something that uh, some people will take these passages up here, they'll take a picture of them on their phone, screenshot it, and later on go and just look them up and actually go through and read them. It's kind of a way to think it back through. Um, this morning I was going to be reading a couple of the passages out of Psalm 51 and Psalm 103 and Isaiah 43. Uh, just for you to think about as you just sort of process them. Um, so we will just spend this time just to just get comfortable, relax. You can close your eyes. Uh, just we're pulling the lights down a little bit low. Let me just read the Word of God to you as you think through and meditate on uh, God's Word to you right now. Here in Psalm 51, David's sin has just been exposed. And he's broken. And he comes before God. We learned last week that if we were to harbor sin in our heart, that that's the thing that God wants to talk about before we talk about anything else. David had been running from God for a season, and then when he's finally exposed and his sin comes out, he just cries out to God and says, God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, that you might erase all of my sins, wash away all my iniquity, that you'd cleanse me from my sin. For God, I know my transgressions, my sins always before me. I think about it every morning and every night. This thing just haunts me. And I knew at some point I'd be found out. And God, I'm broken. It's against you that I've sinned. And it was evil. God, somehow, some way, I just ask that you would create a clean heart in me, O oh Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit that would be unwavering in temptation. It wouldn't be blown by every pull and call. God, don't cast me from your presence. It's been so hard just to come to church or to think that you could even hear me right now. I just ask so that your Holy Spirit would just fill me up right now. Father, restore back to me the kind of joy I had when I first began a relationship with you. Renew back my first love. God, grant me a willing spirit that you'd strengthen my resolve and my will 
to not give in to temptation. That the convictions I have and the decisions I've made right now might sustain. Fathers, I struggle to deal with my own sin, with my failures, with the stupidity of my decisions. Remind me of the Psalm 103 that simply says, You do not always accuse or harbor your anger forever. And Father, forgive me for feeling like as if you're always upset at me and always mad at me and always bringing this up and throwing it in my face. Lord, it's me that's doing that, not you. For Psalm 103 says that you do not treat me as, our, as my sin deserves or repay me according to my shortcomings. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love over me. And as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed my sin from me. In the same way as a father, I have compassion over my kids and I don't always bring up their sin and throw it in their face. I'm not harboring against them and yelling at them for the stuff that they did when they were three and four and five and six years old. In the same way, Father, you've forgiven me of my sins in that same way. As a far more loving father. Father, I turn now to Isaiah 43. With all the anxieties and worries I have over me, Father, remind me of these words. This is what you say. My God, the one who's created me, the one who has formed me, this phrase we read over and over and over again, do not fear, for I've redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through these waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, even at flood stage, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord. I am your God. And I am the Holy One that's been over Israel. I am your Savior. I'm the one who sent his one and only Son to die on the cross for you. That you may be forgiven and set free. That's how much I love you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. I'm the same God who made a way through the sea so that Moses could lead his people out of Egypt. I'm also the one who split heaven and came down at Christmas to live and walk amongst you, the Word made flesh. Lived a sinless life to give it up for you. And I come to you now and say, forget the former things. Stop dwelling on the past. 
Look, I'm doing a new thing. Even now it's beginning to spring up. Can you not perceive it? Can you see it? I'm making a way through the wilderness. I'm creating a stream of living water through the desert. As Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Father, turn my eyes to the future, knowing you've forgiven my past. Help me step into the new reality you're creating for me. And accept the person that you're making me into. Father, you know me. As Psalm 139 says, you know when I rise and when I sit. You know my thoughts even from afar. There's nowhere I could ever go away from your spirit. There's no way I could ever flee your presence. If I were to go to the heavens, you would be there. If I were to go down into the depths, you'd be there. If I rise up early in the morning or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your hand will hold me fast. As I worry that darkness will hide me, even then your light can shine in the darkness around me. For darkness is not dark to you. You can make the night shine like the day. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Father, help me praise you and accept that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. For all your works are perfect and I am your creation. Help me accept that you've made me exactly as you want me to be. Jesus' name, Father, we pray as we reflect and think about your word. Amen.